we come up with a metaphor, and as you as you say, as he says in his article, the metaphor keeps changing for how the brain works because we don't know. In my continued conversation with Dr. Fred Putnam, we discuss how even scientists rely on metaphors to communicate their findings. We also discuss the importance of conversation between scientific and more poetic forms of knowledge on this episode of Seek Wisdom. Is our reality best described by precise scientific language? Or is it better described by what we might call a more poetic view of the world? While we might think these two are mutually exclusive, even a quick glimpse into the expressions of the scientific community will often show the difficulty of separating the two. Scientists often struggle to describe their current understanding of their subjects without some reliance on more poetic tools such as metaphor. My guest, Dr. Fred Putnam, is professor of Bible and liberal studies at Templeton Honors College at Eastern University. He believes that precision and poetics both have an important role to play in how we understand our world and our experience in it. As Dr. Putnam and I continue our discussion surrounding my illustrated children's book, A Good Life, we'll see again how difficult it is to explain our own experience without the use of metaphor, no matter our vocation. We're back. Uh, We've been talking with Dr. Fred Putnam about the pervasive nature of metaphors in our lives, uh, how they affect uh, the way we think about our daily lives, how we think about education. They're everywhere. And one of the surprising places that we maybe wouldn't expect to find them, and yet we do, is in modern science. Right. And, And the struggle that certain scientists are having expressing what they are learning to others without the use of metaphor. So there was a there was an article that I sent to you. I think you said your daughter had, had sent mm-hmm. it to you as well. Um, it's been, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, but it was written by Robert Epstein in Aeon magazine. It was called The Empty Brain. Yes. Among other things, the article discusses the almost unconscious metaphors we used we use uh, to describe our brains and how they function. And it, in particular, it mentions Robert Zarkadakis's book, uh, In Our Image, where he identifies the predominant metaphors we've used to describe how our brains work over the last few centuries. Uh, and his conclusion seemed to be that we have a tendency to describe the brain and how it works using the newest or most revolutionary technology of our day. Right, um, yes. So, for example, hydraulics, invented around 300 B.C., uh, he says, led to the moving liquids or humors model of, of the human body mm-hmm. and, and brain. That influenced philosophy, medicine, and later even psychology and personality theory mm-hmm. um, and persisted for about 1,600 or so years. Uh, in the 1500s, uh, automata, powered by springs and gears, led uh, Rene Descartes to suggest that humans were complex machines. In the 1600s, Thomas Hobbes suggested that our thoughts were the results of mechanical motions in the brain. 1700s, electricity and chemistry and and breakthroughs there brought new metaphorical assertions about our brains. 1800s, the German physicist Hermann von Helmholtz Mm -hmm. uh, compared the brain to a telegraph, Mm -hmm. uh, the technology Mm -hmm. of that day. And surprise, surprise, uh, a few years 
after the dawn of computer technology in the 1940s, the brain was said to operate like a computer, uh, with the role of physical hardware played by the brain itself and our thoughts serving as the software. Uh, the brain as then information processor has been the reigning metaphor uh, since that time. Yes, he uses the abbreviation IP. IP, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, or as my students will often say, uh, well, I'm hardwired that way, or I'm not hardwired that way. Right. Or, or they'll even say, I'm not programmed to do that yes. sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it is pervasive in the way is. we think about mm -hmm. ourselves. And, and this article was disputing that strongly, saying, no, this is just another example of our tendency to, to grab the latest technology, the most advanced thing that we can uh, conceive of, really, and use that to describe ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we, we talked before we started this segment. This is uh, definitely on the periphery of, of our abilities and expertise, but I like this topic, and I like, I'm excited about talking about it because it brings together two things that we would think don't go together very well, and that would be maybe a a poetic way of looking at the world versus a Baconian scientific, precise mm -hmm. description of the world. And it, it seems like, based on the conclusions of this article and another that we'll look at, uh, we're going to need some kind of combination of those two. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. wh what did you, insights that you got from this article, what, what stood out to you in this? What do you make of it? Well, the first thing that struck me is that he's right. Mm -hmm. uh, we use a metaphor to explain the way our minds work. And there was a bit of confusion between mind and brain. So there's an assumption there that the brain is all there is. Right. Uh, and therefore, because it's a physical thing, we can relate it to a physical thing that is a computer and circuits and everything that goes into that. Uh, but the, the fundamental point of his article, his thesis, is that uh, this uh, metaphor has become so uh, dominant in our thinking that he talks about even talking to brain scientists and asking them to come up with some other metaphor, and they were simply unable to do it. They right. could not think outside the box. Yes, beyond the... so so surprising. Yes. You know, that someone that, would be that really surprised that, me. That group would be stumped. Yes, uh, and he, I noticed he doesn't mention. He just said a, a prestigious research. Yes, yes, group. he didn't. He didn't want to embarrass anyone. <laughs> right. I think. Yes, <laughs> that was my reading. Gracious of him. Yes, but yeah, fascinating. Mm -hmm. And and it, I think this illustrates how metaphor really, really works and why we need it. We can't think without metaphor because there are lots of things we actually can't understand. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to revert for, to our earlier talk for just a minute. We can't understand life. That is, what, what is my life? When I look at pictures of myself as a baby or as a teenager or as a newly married man or what, whatever it is, okay, they're all me, but if I line them all up, what am I looking at? Right. Okay, the progress through life, but what is life through which I progress? So it's easier to think of, oh, I can understand what a journey is. Mm -hmm. I get a map, or today I Google it, <laughs> and, and get directions, and then I get in the car, and I, get, and I drive on a road, and, I, and I'm going toward a destination. So I understand the journey. I can't really understand life. And in the same way, we know that something is going on inside our heads, um, or inside us, maybe I should say, that we don't understand. There's no, there's nothing concrete, like the table we have our microphones on, for example, I can touch that, I can measure it, define it, I could weigh it, I could mm -hmm. talk about the wood it's made from. I don't need to use a metaphor for the table because it's here, it's physical, but I, I don't know how the brain works mm -hmm. and nobody really knows how it works. No. And so we, we come up with a metaphor and as you, as you say, as he says in his article, 
the metaphor keeps changing for how the brain works mm -hmm. because we don't know. Yeah, in a sense, we're doing what people were doing, well, 300 BC, which was trying to understand how we work mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. hydraulics mm -hmm. then and mm -hmm. computers now. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, each of those metaphors seems to work when we use sure. it. And it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it there's becomes, some truth to it. There's he calls it sticky, right? Yeah. He says mm -hmm. this it's a sticky metaphor. You know, mm -hmm. it just we can't which is which is why those people were having such trouble trying not figuring well, they couldn't just figure out a way to do it, to right. not use it. Right. And and, and if we take historical precedents, any example of what'll happen in the future, I think there's a good chance that we'll continue to do this. Yes. Yes. That that whatever the next breakthrough will be in our understanding, or what we're going to consider a breakthrough anyway, mm -hmm. um, will be some other metaphor mm -hmm. that we latch onto and begin to explain uh, the brain in that way. Mm -hmm. um, any, anything else on that article before I move to, to the other one that you sent me? Before no, let's, this? let's go on to the other okay. one. Yeah. So you sent me another one called uh, Quantum Poetics, Why Physics Can't Get Rid of a Metaphor by Samuel uh, Matlack in The New Atlantis. What really amazed me about that article he does an excellent job of delving into some of the deep waters of uh, of current physics theory from the theory of relativity to quantum mechanics and shows us that the things physicists are discovering and theorizing about are almost impossible for them to communicate yes. without the use of metaphorical language. Mm -hmm. what, what do you make of that even mm -hmm. in, in physics? Yes, but there again, that, that simply fits with our need for metaphor. Mm -hmm. We're made to think metaphorically because there are things that are beyond our ability to conceptual, to describe, to mm -hmm. grasp, let's say, to, to use a metaphor. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We, we can't help it. <laughs> we can't yeah. help it. And so I remember when I was a, when I was young, I got these books on science that my parents bought me and and the molecule was described as a miniature solar system. That's, mm. that's what it looked like. And then when we went to uh, lab class in uh, high school chemistry, we used these wooden balls with springs to connect them, and each spring represented a molecular bond. Mm. Uh, and, and then by the time I was in college, or shortly after college, we're onto the cloud theory of atoms. Right. And now we're into quark theory and <laughs> chaos theory and... And, and each one of those seems so right at the time. I mean, every one of those is a metaphor. True. It's, it's not a solar system. It's not mm -hmm. a cloud. It's not this. It's, they're all just attempts to describe something that is beyond... Well, first of all, we can't see it. Mm -hmm. and, and so we can't measure it. We can't define it. All we can do is try to talk conceptually about it. And so when, as soon as we do that, we're into the land of metaphor use a metaphor, right. uh, we've moved on to that. And we can't help it. We, we have no choice, especially when we're trying to communicate with people who are not specialists or maybe just below the specialist level. So, so let's right. say we have high-level researchers at you know, some research institute, and there are college professors who need to teach this stuff but are not actually doing the work themselves, mm -hmm. and they need to teach it to students who have no idea what's going on. <laughs> And so the, the level of metaphor kind of spreads out, as it were, and becomes more, more generic, mm -hmm. let's say, more culturally recognizable. As you try to translate, you, to, to translate mathematics, as it were, to something you can communicate in words, Yes, that's where the need for mm -hmm. metaphor comes in. And as soon as we say, it's like, mm -hmm. now we're into a metaphor. Mm -hmm. So in metaphor theory, one of the ideas is that of blended spaces. 
So a blended space in, in the theory is that uh, we have a target that we're trying to explain and we have a source from which we're drawing our explanatory metaphor. Mm -hmm. Now that's actually a target and a source domain because the source is bigger than the target. So we're talking about a whole, an area, a realm of experience that we're going to use to explain this target or to describe it, let's say. But not everything over here in the source fits the target and mm -hmm. vice versa. So instead we borrow from both of those and put them together in a space that doesn't really exist. So here's a real, this is a mm. famous example you'll find in some books by Kovesh and others um, on metaphor theory. Uh, suppose a man says to a woman, uh, I actually have trouble uh, envisioning this conversation, but nonetheless, <laughs> suppose a man says to a woman, if I were you, I would get pregnant. Hmm. I would get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, immediately the mind begins bending, right? <laughs> right. Because that's, that's an, um, he's just created an imaginary world mm -hmm. that is an, we know is an impossible world. Mm -hmm. But what he's, what he's saying is, you're the target. I'm trying to explain it. So I'm going to, I'm going to draw from this other realm and put them together and say, this is how we can understand the situation. Mm -hmm. And so this blended space becomes the, uh, the world that's created by the metaphor, which is not the thing we're trying to explain. Right. And it's not the source we're drawing from, but it's instead pieces of each of those being put together. And what's really fascinating is that when we hear a metaphor, uh, let me use a different one. So I, I've heard this, a student will walk into, the, into a classroom before class and somebody says, how are you doing? And they'll say, oh, I'm dead. Mm -hmm. Well, we know they're not dead, but we understand what they mean. Right. Uh, and so we automatically discount all the stuff from the source domain of being dead that doesn't apply, mm -hmm. like no heartbeat, no pulse, you know, no brain mm -hmm. waves, right? But we also draw all the things from being dead. That is, a dead person is often horizontal. They look like they're asleep. They don't move. They don't respond. They're incapable of response. There's, there's no energy there. There's no energy. That's <laughs> right. exactly right. <laughs> and, and so we can apply that. To, and we understand instantly. We don't, mm -hmm. have to, we don't have to go, oh, here's a list of things that it means to be dead. He can't mean that, that, that. We just know. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how metaphors work almost miraculously. But, but we're made to work that way. Right. And yeah. So, we, we're what you're saying is we're creating our own worlds, as it were. As it were, yes. Where we almost uh, agree with another person. Okay, we're going to create this world together. Yes. And we're going to inhabit it uh, mm -hmm. while we talk about this mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. and then we'll leave it. Um, mm -hmm. And we may pick up another world mm -hmm. and exist there together for mm -hmm. a little bit. A different metaphor. And that's why physicists can use metaphors, and they can talk to each other in these metaphors. Mm -hmm. Because they understand the pieces of each of those, the source and the target that they're actually applying to what they're trying to understand. Right. The challenge is the rest of us who are not physicists, not working in quark theory or chaos theory, all we know is the source. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to figure out sometimes, if we're really thoughtful about it, trying to figure out which aspects of that source may or may not apply to the target, which we can't ourselves have trouble conceptualizing. Right, a very, very complex equation. Mm -hmm. I loved the quote in the article from uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist Niels Bohr. Uh, he said, quote, we must be clear that when it comes to atoms, language can be used only as in poetry, mm -hmm. end quote. Yes. And, and even more, I loved uh, Matt Lack's comment on that idea. He says, uh, quote, 
Homo sapiens began his quest for knowledge in the realm of poetry, and in the end, it seems that in basic respect, we are destined to remain close to this starting point. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I just thought that was a wonderful summary of, of mm-hmm. the problem, or possibly not the problem, possibly a better take on reality. There's a book by James Taylor called Poetic Knowledge in which he he describes what uh, a view of knowledge or a way of knowing, which he calls poetic, which actually goes back to the Greeks, mm-hmm. um, back to the Socratic, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and is, well, let me illustrate, the, it's easier to illustrate than to explain, mm-hmm. perhaps. One way of learning astronomy is to hand someone a textbook or to lecture or show them a PowerPoint slide, series of slides, and uh, give them equations and explain that you need to, you really do need to know calculus to do astronomy, you know, and, and just go through so that astronomy becomes a list of facts mm-hmm. um, and and figures and equations and that sort of, and, and that's one way to actually introduce people to, to astronomy. That's actually used in a lot of schools. It's mm-hmm. pretty common. Another way is to take the same students out on a dark night and just look at the stars mm-hmm. and talk about different colors, ask them to pick out different colors. Look, how many colors can you see? Show them the constellations. Use one of those laser pointers, you know, Mm -hmm. show the constellations. Tell them the stories. This is a Native American legend of that constellation. Here's a Greek legend for that constellation, and here's a Roman legend for this one, or whatever else. Mm. And then just get them thinking about what it means even to look at the stars, even to consider the stars. And then begin to introduce Mm -hmm. this is the other way the scientific way as we would call it of Mm -hmm. looking of looking at this but never let go of that keep the two going together talking so the poetic knowledge Mm -hmm. informs the quote scientific end quote knowledge and vice versa i just wonder whether if there could be a, a greater dialogue or a renewed dialogue between people of those let's just say two mindset tendencies Mm-hmm. Uh, that maybe we would make breakthroughs that we're not making. Mm-hmm. Now. Maybe that mm-hmm. isolation of those two ways of thinking um, and sort of the Cold War between between them in a, in a way. Um, to use a metaphor, yes. Yes. <laughs> right? um, yeah. That that's, that's not healthy. It's not really helping anybody. It's probably crippling both sides yes. uh, to some degree. So. Yes. Anything else? Uh, yeah, I think we, we, run, we do run into that problem in academe. It's called siloing, right? Where yes. I have my discipline and I have my sub-discipline and I have my sub-sub-sub-discipline. Uh, I just read, wrote a book on uh, the discourse analysis of biblical Hebrew poetry. That's probably about as sub-sub-sub <laughs> as you can get. And if I only studied that, then I, I think my life would be severely truncated. Mm-hmm. Instead, there's a, there's a need... I think you're right in saying that there is a need for, not just for cooperation, but for deliberate partnership. Mm -hmm. You know the story of the, what is it, Building 200 at MIT during uh, World War II? No. There's an article, I think it's Atlantic uh, Monthly. MIT didn't, they they weren't allowed the materials to put up a a new building because of war restrictions. Mm -hmm. And so they basically built a building out of plywood and two by fours. Hmm. And the three-story building, huge building, and they, they just put everybody in there they didn't have room for. So mm-hmm. linguistics was in there, physics was in there, nuclear physics was in there. I mean, just a whole mess. And and because the building was made out of plywood and two-by-fours, you could make doors wherever you wanted to. Mm-hmm. One person even uh, took out the floor 
or, or the ceiling, I guess, so he could have a two-story room in order to have a small sort of reactor so he could test. <laughs> um, but they said what happened was, because the building was so haphazard, there was no rhyme or reason to the room numbers or the office numbers. And so everybody had to ask everybody else, how do I find this place? Mm-hmm. And everybody was talking to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And out of that building came, I, I don't remember how many, but more than a dozen Nobel Prizes. Mm. Just there was this fermentation that yes. took place by all these disciplines mixing together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Steve Jobs, uh, w- when they designed the uh, new headquarters for Apple, he wanted one bathroom, one break room, one mail room, and he wanted them all in the same place. Hmm. Eventually, he got enough pushback on the bathrooms that they put a couple more <laughs> around the building. Right. Uh, but the idea was that everybody would have a much better chance of meeting each other mm-hmm. if they had to go here to get their mail, if they had to go here to go to, you know, to use a men's room or a ladies' room. They had mm-hmm. to go. So people who might never have talked to each other in a normal corporation mm-hmm. where you're segmented according to job would meld, mix together, blend together. And it seems to me the same thing ought to be true in, in if we say the sciences and the liberal arts, to right. use two terms, right? Right. If they were put in proximity to each other so that the person who's studying linear algebra is also talking to the person who's studying poetry right? and, and anything yes. else. Really, that brings us back to, to the idea of, of education being a conversation. Mm, yes, it does. There's really two sides of it. I mean, even in universities, you have the, the research end of it, which is there are things we don't know. Let's keep looking. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the, the education part of it, which is, okay, well, let's take the things we do know and tell the people that are coming up so that mm-hmm. they can later be part of the research project. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole goal is to understand what we don't know and to explain what we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in both of those, conversation is possibly where we could get a lot more breakthrough than siloing or isolation. Mm-hmm. So yes. it seems yeah. like we've, we've come back around to that idea <laughs> right. as, as a good one. And that brings to a close our second episode of Seek Wisdom. In episode three, I'll conclude my conversation with Dr. Fred Putnam as we delve into his expertise on biblical poetry and getting a closer look at the Bible's idea that God is a farmer, the world is his field, and people are plants. We'll discuss the implications of these ideas and how they can impact our work and our lives. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremiah Pend.